0: Welcome to Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat
1: Wright. And I'm Grant, one of the original guests from Opera for Everyone, including on some of those lost episodes that are somewhere in a BBC vault.
0: If only we had those. Those were good episodes. Well, today's opera is, you can probably tell from the introductory music there, this is a Baroque opera by George Friedrich Handel, that great composer. And the name of this opera is?
1: Xerxes, or Cersei, or... Something that I can't really pronounce. It's one of these names, and we'll run into a few of these over the course of this opera, that has been through a whole bunch of different languages and a whole bunch of different alphabets. It's like with Jesus, right, where the name Jesus has been so through so many different languages and different alphabets that you somehow get from Yeshua to Yesus to... I don't know, eventually we ended up at Jesus, which has got like two of the same letters. This is
0: an all-time first for Opera for Everyone. A minute and a half in, and our digression is very far away. Xerxes- We're a big fan of the
1: digressions here at Opera for Everyone. Xerxes, the name of the opera,
0: refers to the Persian king who ruled... In the 5th century BC.
1: And this is a totally historical play with no historical inaccuracies whatsoever. Just
0: like every single
1: opera ever written. Or every other story about Xerxes. Yeah. That's true.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and you know how they have
1: spoiler alerts? Oh, do, do, we do we have a spoiler alert?
0: Do we need a facetiousness alert? Oh. Operas are not the place to get your history. Just opera for everyone. Listeners have heard me say this before. Operas are not the place to get your history.
1: And that's very true. But I would add that with this subject, there's kind of no place to get your history. There are Persian the government record, records that you can turn to. But kind of most of the stuff that you find about them was written by people who really didn't like them or well, in a handful of cases really did like them. The Greeks.
0: But, yeah. The Greeks. Those Persian wars with the Greeks before the golden age i mean persia didn't work out well for them then did it
1: yeah they fought some wars with the people who invented the concept of history as we know it so like (laughs) it turns out that's not great for your image in the long run but there's a lot to be said about the persian empire and a lot to be said about xerxes
0: only a very small amount of which we will mention today
1: yes we will not get into every imaginable detail But it is interesting to notice that gap because in the end of the day, this isn't exactly a play about Xerxes, the historical human being who ruled over the Achaemenid Empire at one point. This is about Xerxes, the figure in Western history and playwriting and public imagination, the stories that were told that created the ideas of what Asia is and what Europe is that are still very much with us to this day.
0: Wow. And so let's just speak for a moment about our composer and what little I can say about our librettist. Our composer, George Frederick Handel, I'm going to anglicize him because after all he did become a naturalized British subject. He was- He
1: anglicized himself. He
0: anglicized himself from Georg to George. Handel was born in the mid-17th century and lived into the mid-18th century. So we're talking about the first half of the 18th century, the 1700s, when he's com- doing most of his composing. He was born in Brandenburg, Prussia, and he was talented from the start. And one of the interesting things about Handel is he turned down royal patronage. King offered to pay to send him to Italy with the understanding that he would come back and work for the court. That was a perfectly normal thing to do. Handel didn't want that arrangement. He didn't want to be under the king, a court musician, a staff member at court. He did go to Italy and get some training because that's where you wanted to go, where you had to go, Italy being the birthplace of opera and where all the opera was happening. Did do some study there, but ultimately he goes to England in 1712. it's not that long after 1727 he becomes this naturalized British subject. And he works for over 50 years in London. Beloved, superstar. So you've got a German man living in England, Writing operas that are performed in Italian.
1: And I wonder if we're going to learn over the course of the opera what some of the attitudes Handel had about kings and royal authority. I think it's likely, uh, very likely. Some of these decisions. But it is interesting because he has an interesting relationship with the British kings. And I say British in a kind of sort of loose because they're sense. all
0: from Germany as well, right? Yes. in his era.
1: And they you know, the uh, George the the founder of the Hanoverian dynasty, is the first one of these kings who comes from Germany yes. and uh, doesn't speak English is comes straight over within 2 years of Handel. He actually comes 2 years after Handel comes to England. And so it's kind of a very interesting There's this cultural kinship in these two Germans who become British.
0: Right. And even though most of his operas premiere in a place called the King's Theater, he's not a staff member at court. He is a musician who's plying his trade. But enough of all this. I think it's time for some music.
1: And now for one of the most famous arias in all of opera.
0: Well, this is opera for everyone. You are listening to Handel's great opera, Xerxes.
1: And that was a beautiful love song.
0: Who's in love with whom?
1: There is the king, Xerxes, and he is in love with a tree. With a tree? With a tree.
0: You're kidding me, right?
1: Well, either I'm kidding you or somebody's kidding you. I mean, it seems pretty unlikely that the actual historical Xerxes was ever in love with a tree. And yet... (laughs) He he did in fact come from a region and religious tradition where veneration of trees was a known phenomenon, but it seems far more likely that this story is a reflection of the criticisms that the Greeks had of Xerxes. But again, we're not trying to get at the historical Xerxes here; that is a wasted effort. We were trying to talk about the idea of Xerxes and the Persians and the East and Asia generally and how those were imagined by Handel and the tradition that led up to him.
0: Okay, before we continue on with history, I have just a little fun fact about this particular aria. Um, This aria, by the way, is the most famous, best known, often played from this opera. In fact, this is the aria that kind of kept this opera on the map, because this opera was not a success when it first played. We can talk about the reasons for that a little bit later, when we'll have experienced enough of the opera to discuss that. But fun fact, in 1906, the Canadian inventor and radio pioneer Reginald Fessenden made the first AM radio broadcast with this particular song. That's how popular it was. It was the one he thought... People would love to hear over AM
1: radio. Those people who could hear it. Because, I mean, you know, trees are great. I love trees. I think we should have more trees, don't you think? Absolutely. But enough about
0: trees. You were telling us about Europe and Asia and the Europeans' view of Asia.
1: Yeah, so all of these stories come from the stories that get told about the Persian Wars. And the Persian Wars were this series of conflicts between Persia, which ruled the stretch in between Asia Minor and India.
0: These uh, are these are the wars, aren't they, the ones that are chronicled by the one and only father of history as we know him, Herodotus?
1: Yes, everybody's, everybody's fascinated by these wars. These wars are interesting enough that history as we know it seems to be invented largely to talk about what happened in these wars and the Athens versus Sparta wars that kind of like Attach themselves historically and uh, with the
0: golden damage. age in between,
1: yeah. Yes, so this is this is sort of in many ways Europe's foundational myth when Europe starts to have a sense of itself as being Europe. Okay, so the idea of the West comes very much from these, and this is the stories that get told about the Persian Wars have influenced so much of what came afterwards. So, is this opera going to be about wars? This opera is about power and so there is war in the background here but Xerxes as he is imagined here is a figure of unimaginable unquestioned power
0: so the wars are in the background we're not on the battlefield here
1: we're at court we are not at court we're on campaign We're we're moving towards the battle in fact The great exercise in the middle of this opera is the construction of the bridge that Xerxes built between Asia and Europe. Yes, supposedly the first one failed and the second one succeeded. And after the failure of this first bridge where he tried to connect Asia and Europe. And by the way, Asia. Over what body of
0: water are they?
1: The Hellespont. Uh, the roughly where where uh, we find Istanbul or if you go further back Constantinople or if we go further back Byzantium what you had is these attempts to bridge Asia and Europe Asia at this point being a term oh,
0: nice metaphorical and literal use of bridge
1: right and and by the way our ter- our terms Asia and Europe which we use to refer to continents yes I guess there's some debate these days about whether or not Britain is part of, of Europe but most of us think of Europe as being everything in between Iceland and Istanbul, but originally the term Europe refers to Thrace, the area immediately on the western side of this strait. And which the, is the modern name, by the way, is Dardanelles. Yeah. Where Asia originally refers to what we would these days call Asia Minor, which is to say... Turkey. The body of land immediately to the east of this strait. And so, as a result, you get this idea of bridging Asia and Europe, and these are part of the foundation of what we imagine as being Asia and Europe, and a lot of the stereotypes that, uh, that emerge from that. So I think we've probably spoken enough about geopolitics 2,500 years ago, and because it's probably... Because it's only
0: very gently in the background of this opera.
1: Yes and no. Oh. So this is an opera that a lot of people treat as simply being a romantic comedy.
0: A romantic comedy comedy from Mr. Opera Seria? Yeah. Handel?
1: That may be part of the uh the original uh, oh, yeah, struggles maybe. at the box office. <laughs> but this is can be can be treated as just a opera about love, mm. but it is an opera about love and power, which may sound familiar to some of you who've listened to previous opera, ever So we can get into that later. Let's launch into the story here. We have in the very beginning the king singing his love for a tree. Mhm. And In that well-loved aria. Then enter Arsimene. Arsimene. The brother of the king, historically, the ruler of Egypt during this time. He was... uh, So he's
0: a true historical figure, this brother of the king.
1: Exactly. He is a, you know, again, his like his name has gone through the meat grinder through six different languages, (laughs) but (laughs) uh, the brother of the king who was the satrap or the governor of, of Egypt during this time and was a loyal ally of Xerxes, although here... We may find that uh, there's a little tension between them, at least eventually. But here, his function is as the brother of Xerxes. And both Xerxes and Arsimenae are in love with the beautiful Romilda.
0: Ooh, a love triangle.
1: And so she wanders in and sees the king singing his love song to the tree and thinks the whole thing is very silly. (laughs) She's got a point. Can't imagine why she thinks that. (laughs) Anyway, this is the song she then goes to
0: listening to opera for everyone and that was romilda in handel's opera xerxes
1: and so romilda comes in she makes fun of xerxes for his love of a tree and then sings about how wonderful it is to be a river that is free to do as it wants
0: oh freedom
1: and freedom specifically for our river, which is, of course, an interesting thing and doesn't exactly make sense unless you take into account the historical context. <laughs> when the Greeks looked at Xerxes' attempt to bridge the gap between Asia and Europe, yes. to build a bridge over it, they saw this as an act of sacrilege in oh. a technical sense. They thought that this was, against, this was the gods? against the gods, that he was attempting to show his mastery over the gods and over the forces of nature. Oh. And this obviously exaggerated but still very famous story is told that the first time he built a bridge and it collapses, yes, as it does in the action of this play, the first time he builds this bridge and it collapses, he is so offended that the gods would try to thwart him so that he orders his men to whip The river?
0: No, you're kidding me.
1: Well, either me or Herodotus again. So he orders his men to go and whip the river and cast shackles into the river to tell the river, the body of water, the stream, the strait, that he is in charge and it Uh, should obey his commands. Wow. And from the Greek point of view, everything that happens to him after this, all of the defeats that he suffers, are the result of his insane hubris to think that this one man can thwart the will of the gods.
0: Oh, that's an interesting contrast to this opening where he's essentially worshiping a tree.
1: Yes. And the Greeks, by the way, this, this story ties in because what he did is he decorated the tree. He covered it in gold finery as a way of showing, you know, as, as one does with one's lover, one buys them jewelry. And wow. he covers the tree in this decoration. And the Greeks saw this again as a human attempt to command nature, to say the tree is beautiful, but it would be more beautiful if we added some human things to it.
0: It reminds me of the expression, gilding the lily.
1: Yes, yes, very much. This, this is a, a, a gilding the lily exercise <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that Xerxes is engaged in.
0: <laughs> so Grant, can you tell us a little bit more about the story that's going on in this opera?
1: So Ramilda has mocked him for this, and then she proceeds to sing about this beautiful and gentle stream.
0: But it was good-natured mocking, right? She does it with a smile on her face.
1: Uh, Sure. I don't know. Okay. I'm sure it can be played both ways. It's one of these wonderful things about operas that you can decide whether the characters are being played with menace and malice or not. And that's one of the important choices that you have to make with Xerxes is, is he in the end of the day a cruel tyrant mm. or is he a buffoon or is he a confused king or is he someone who simply doesn't know what to do in the world, because he's uh, struck by too much affluenza.
0: (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, he doesn't take offense at Romilda's mocking.
1: Indeed. And in fact, he is enchanted by her. Oh. And decides (laughs) that she must be his, because he's a king and he gets to have whatever he wants.
0: All right. So you've mentioned this love triangle between the king, Xerxes, and his brother, Arsimene and Romilda... They both love Romilda.
1: Who does Romilda love? Romilda loves Arsimene. She loves the brother. Yes. Tough and luck for the king. This except. is bad news for King Xerxes. Now, those of you who have been following Opera for Everyone for some time will notice that this all sounds very similar, and it will get more similar still, by the way.
0: Okay, time for a shameless plug for the podcast. Episode 30, Tom Erlano by Handel. Grant and I will discuss in depth.
1: And Tom Erlano is... The eponymous king of the Timurid Empire, who ruled over all the area we're talking about here, and then some extra into India.
0: And comes in contact with this Greek world as well.
1: And comes into contact with the Greek and, in fact, the Ottoman world in addition. And that is also a play where, as, as with this one, everybody kind of wants the same thing, except for the king. Who kind of wants his own thing? Um, Who's the
0: big monkey wrench in
1: everything? Yes, I suppose here we have had a little bit more confusion with the sisters who who want different things. We'll get to. But that. we haven't gotten to sisters. So so far we have a set of
0: brothers, one of whom's the king, and we have Romilda who is adorable,
1: and we have Romilda who they both love. But the king is the king and has absolute unquestioned power.
0: There's a duet that the two of them sing about. I love her. Back to Opera for Everyone. This is Handel's opera about the Persian king Xerxes.
1: And all of those lovely people who float around in his orbit begging for his favor. Mm. Well, not really. Romilda, in fact, is not begging for his favor, and neither is Arsemene. Both of these people are defying him because they are in love with each other, even though the king loves Romilda.
0: So, Grant, you mentioned there was a sister.
1: Romilda has a sister named Atalanta, and she's kind of trouble. What kind of trouble? She's the flirty kind of trouble. Oh, fun. And she's decided that she, likewise, wants Arsemene. So for those of you keeping track, we've got this kind of love quadrilateral here. Romilda <laughs> a and love ours.
0: quadrilateral?
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> Romilda, uh, or maybe like a love Z, something like that. Yeah. We've got her love... No, it's a... we'll we'll go with what well, love quadrilateral here here. Okay. So we've got Xerxes and Arsimene, who are brothers. We've got Ramilda and Atalanta, who are sisters. Xerxes and Arcimene both love Ramilda. Ramilda requites Arsimene's love and not Xerxes. And Atalanta does she love Arsimene? Well, maybe not, but she's decided she wants him. But she's
0: cute and she knows it, and she set her sights on him.
1: And so she's gonna go and Make it happen. We've got Xerxes tries to force his way into a love story with his raw political power, and Atalanta tries a uh, subtler approach. So Atalanta sees that Arsimene is distressed, that Xerxes wants to break up his happy relationship, mm-hmm. and she says, oh, that's so terrible, let me comfort you, and begins to attempt to seduce him.
0: Oh, because if the king gets his way, then Arsimene is unattached and she can have him. Exactly. This is Opera for Everyone, and you're listening to Handel's opera, Xerxes. And that was the lovely, and she knows it, Atalanta. She set her sights on her sister's beloved, and she thinks it's going to work out fine because the king has fallen in love with her sister. So everything's good.
1: And as with Xerxes, this is a character who can be played either as being dangerous and malicious and grabbing what they want at the expense of everyone around them, Or it can be played as a kind of goofy character who's also obsessively grabbing at whatever they want.
0: But there is an inherent comedic element to Atalanta. Yes. And this is a good time to mention this inherent comedic element is there and there are various times. I mean, even with the gentle making fun of the king singing to the tree. One of the reasons this opera didn't gain immediate favor, in fact, it only played five times in London when it opened in 1738 and after that they actually shortened the run and played older operas because they could sell tickets to those at the theater it was nearly two centuries it was 1925 when there was the first revival of this opera
1: which is wild when you think about it, and a, and a crazy contrast to, say, for instance, the Messiah or Messiah or Handel's Messiah, whichever we're going to be saying, which we did in a previous opera for everyone.
0: Yes, and just if you're if you're wondering, that was episode forty-six. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Got to throw in the shameless plugs there. Absolutely. So yeah, it's it's a it's a remarkable contrast between this one piece that has been played kind of more than anything else. Yes versus this one that was rediscovered in the 20th century
0: and has become enduringly popular. Right, that one aria that we mentioned, the one to the tree, did have some popularity as a, as just as a song on its own in the 19th century. But the opera itself, not until 1925 did it get revived. And then it's gotten some play. But honestly, if you read about it, it's this 1985 ENO, English National Opera, English language version production, that really sort of brings it back into the mainstream or I mean to the extent that a Handel opera is going to be mainstream <laughs>
1: but it's baroque opera but at the same time it's it it feels very modern in many ways again yeah. it is they were struggling back then to figure out where this fits in terms of genre and i right. suppose there's a struggle today in terms of where it fits in in genre but it's clearly Got the some of the elements of a romantic comedy. And it's also got the elements of this kind of scary story about men with political and sexual power. like just like a number of other more contemporary operas, Rosen Cavalier comes to mind. oh, which is another opera where you get this choice. To what extent is this played as being silly? And to what extent is this played as being a play about threatening? Yeah power and masculinity and nobility.
0: Sadly, Rosen Cavalier was done on Opera for Everyone, but that's part of the lost of the lost episodes. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to address oh, Rosen Cavalier. Re-record that, sometime. Absolutely. that was a, that was a ton of fun to do. That was fun. You did you did beautifully with that. But Was that the first one? Uh, that was the inaugural
1: episode, yes. It was the very first opera for everyone. There's some opera for everyone history for you there.
0: Yeah, there you go. But sadly it's it's lost, I think. This comedic element—it's interesting because it's part of what made it a, a thud at the box office for Handel. Handel, by the way, is a superstar at this point. He's—he's he's a rock star in—he's <laughs> a rock star in London. But people didn't want because it was seen as disrespectful. Because operas at this point were about great characters, these personages, these kings and emperors and princesses. And it needed to be, and these were serious people, and they needed to be treated seriously. So the fact that there was this comic element, I mean, this is not a laugh riot, but there are these little comic moments built in. Part of what made it disastrous at the box office in Handel's day, I think is part of what makes it fun to do in the modern day, because we like a little comedy mixed in with our seriousness.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it's fun. You say it's not a laugh riot, but I don't know, the version that I saw, the, the, the English language version, the audience wasn't stitches at a few points. It's like, it obviously, like all these things, it depends very much on how it's staged and the way that the characters are played, but there's a goofiness to this. And that is is in keeping with the historical tradition, right? Where you've got this story about Xerxes whipping the ocean, which is simultaneously a story about a king who is marching in to to despoil cities and sack them and raise them and sell their populations into slavery. Not comic. Which is as serious as things can be. But at the same time, it's this ridiculousness of this king who's whipping the ocean and trying to beat the gods into submission. I mean, it's like, I don't even know what it would look like to try and whip the ocean.
0: Wouldn't it have been fabulous if they could have depicted that scene in the opera?
1: But they don't have to. A lot of this stuff does get left implicit. All of the massive marching armies, the heroic resistance of the Greeks, the ultimate defeat of Xerxes, all of that is understood. All but I have a
0: question for you, because modern audiences
1: would not necessarily know all that.
0: But audiences of Handel's
1: Day? They might well have. Opera was and is a art form that's associated with people of higher education, higher wealth. Yeah. Although uh, we at Opera for Everyone are doing our level best to make opera accessible to everyone and change that a little bit. Yes. But
0: Mission statement. Good. Good,
1: good work, Grant. <laughs> we're we're just trying to get as many plugs for opera for everyone in this particular podcast. We as love possible. what we do. But yes, th- this is part of the cultural milieu is understanding that yes, Xerxes fought this war against the Greeks, that he tried to chain the ocean, that he tried to conquer these people, and that he failed. And all of that is implicit in this story. It doesn't say anywhere that he's going to get his butt kicked by the Greeks, but. We know that. The audience knows that anyway. And we sort of know that in our modern era from movies like 300, which yeah. uh, take on the the narrative of 300 and its, it's a thoroughly mediocre sequel, <laughs> uh, which which has a, an interesting depiction of Xerxes as this- Yeah, not,
0: like, that's not history as I know it. Well, it's not history, but again, it,
1: neither was this. These people are oh. in touch with their cultural traditions, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the cultural traditions that they had, some of which did, in fact, date back to- a roughly contemporary period, the one Greek tragedy that is about contemporary events, contemporary to the writer, mm-hmm. uh, the one ancient Greek tragedy is Aeschylus' *The Persians*, which we can talk about at some point. Oh, but but yes, it's it's, it's all it's not about what actually happened uh, historically. It's about these stories that get told because in the end of the day the actual impact in terms of politics of the persian invasion was kind of a, was a nothing happened right like they went back and forth and then there was the wars between athens and sparta and so like
0: well what happened is they didn't get conquered by the persians yes The Greeks did not get conquered by the Persians.
1: But far beyond the direct political implications, there were massive cultural implications. Because this defeat, this victory against what they thought of as unimaginable odds, all of Asia against a handful of Greek city-states, formed the basis of the West's imagination of itself. And you can see this all the way down to things like lord of the rings where you get the massive hordes from the east and the brave fighters for freedom from the west
0: and it's it you know just a little side note here this whole freedom fighting ancient greek self-image and which then gets carried into classical education of all the highly educated people in handel's day and beyond it's just a side note that the greeks could do what they did because they had such a huge enslaved population.
1: Exactly. And that's and it's worth noting that there's a a contrast between ideals and reality. And so the, so do, often true in the the Greeks, so
0: many places.
1: The Greeks developed this ideal in favor of of freedom, and oftentimes yes. explicitly as opposed to slavery, saying the Greeks are slaves to no one. That's actually a quote from uh, Aeschylus of the Persians. Yeah, if you're a Greek citizen, is the Greeks are slaves to no one? But of course, lots of the Greeks were slaves to other Greeks. Right. Um, right. And so, and so, the whole thing is that there's this idealization of freedom, and specifically also of limited government, limited monarchy. Right. Monarchs who are not all that powerful, or monarchs who aren't monarchs. You can actually pick apart what is the extent to which this is true. What is the extent to which people had their own autonomy in the Persian Empire and certain people groups like if you read the Bible the Jews had a pretty good under the Persian Empire all things considered they were quite positive about the Persian Empire all things considered they thought that it was ridiculous and foppish from time to time but they also thought that the Persians gave them the freedom to practice life in their own way and adhere to their cultural traditions in a way that previous overlords had not
0: you know what they say history is written
1: by the writers Exactly. Or at least that's what we say. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I think, I think it's probably time to, to get back to our plot. And since we've been talking about political history, I think we should introduce another political figure. Yes, who? The princess. The princess? The princess Amastra. And she's the princess of a neighboring kingdom, left deliberately vague, and... She is betrothed to Xerxes. Now, for those of you who have been keeping track, that causes a problem at this point. Or presents a possible solution. mmm indeed. So, Amastris is betrothed to Xerxes, and she wants to check up on it. And as royalty so often do, and they don't think that anyone will tell them the truth, presenting themselves as they are, uh-huh. she dresses in disguise. And it, in opera, we love characters in disguise. So she dresses up as a man. Oh. And proceeds to sing this song.
0: For everyone, we are listening to Handel's opera Xerxes. That low female voice you just heard was a mastre
1: who is engaged to the king and is there to secretly spy on him and make sure that everything is going according to plan.
0: And if you're going to spy on someone, you're in costume. So she's in man's dress. Yes. And interesting, the other two women we've heard from are sopranos. She's got a low voice, she's dressed as a man. And by the way, I can't believe we're this far into a Handel opera, and we haven't mentioned these men, these romantic leads, who seem to have very high voices. That's worth a mention.
1: It's, it is worth a mention, because there's a lot of gender bending stuff going on here. Now, part of that has to do with specific conventions over how the Castrati part was played. Yes. Which we talked to a little bit about in our Tamerlato. Quick
0: recap on the castrati.
1: Oh, okay. Do we need to describe what castrati are? I remember last time we both kind of tried to go the other one. into. I'll explaining. take a deep breath and, and do it briefly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, happily, we do not have castrati any longer, but we have plenty of operas that were written for these roles. These are men who prepubescently were surgically prevented from going through puberty
1: properly. I love that you're willing to say castrati, but not willing to say castrated. Well, I did actually on the other one, and you said <laughs> it this time. Yes,
0: so they don't go through, they, they still grow up to be full-grown men, but they don't develop the deep male voice that we, you know, even tenor and on and on. They don't develop the deep male voice, but they're interesting because they can sing oftentimes the same, you can have a soprano castrato, you can have a mezzo castrato. They can sing the same uh, notes as the females, but it's a very different quality of sound. And in Handel's day, it wasn't the soprano divas who reigned. It wasn't the tenors who reigned. It was the castrati. They were the great, powerful artists who in fact could dictate to the composers what was expected in the arias that they were given. And we can talk a little bit more about the improvisation, which is expected as well in so many arias. We can do that later. But right now, these castrati, it's its worth mentioning, because Xerxes, the, the romantic leads, are pretty much always these male voices that are very high. So Xerxes is actually uh, a soprano castrato as originally written. And it's in modern day, it's either played by a woman or it's played by a countertenor and these are amazing singers these are men who it's a falsetto that they sing in but it's not it's not just a little decoration in a pop song they sing full operas full controlled beautiful songs in this very high voice something that's a little unusual for a modern listener
1: it's amazing and kind of terrifying from a physical point of view until you realize what the alternative is
0: exactly (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah like they did it in the
0: 17th 18th century and and there's historical reasons for this um, they love high voices are pretty and women for the most part weren't expected or permitted to sing on the stage because it is simply something even if it wasn't officially banned it was not something a respectable woman did to perform to be seen by others to perform to entertain other people and so the way you got these high voices was, Manufactured it in men.
1: I love that bit of lore for uh, Handel's Messiah, where during the opening performance, somebody jumped up in the crowd and told the the singing the soprano, I believe, right, uh, it told her, "For this, all thy sins be forgiven."
0: Right, is... because it's just assumed she's a sinful woman if she's performing.
1: Exactly, which is which is uh, sort of almost baffling to us, but also kind of familiar in some of the ways that we look at celebrities as being um, hollow or vapid or vampish.
0: So in this opera, we've got two of these high-pitched male roles. These are the two most romantically interesting ones. Xerxes, and you've got Arsimene, the brother of Xerxes. We've got two Sopranos, the two sisters, Romilda and Atalanta, and you've, you've got the contralto or sometimes played by a mezzo, Amastre, that's this that's the princess that we just heard. And then we have two men who sing in male voices. One's a servant. We'll, we'll hear from him soon.
1: And the other is the one person in this story whose masculinity never strays from traditional bounds. And that is Ariodate, the commander of Xerxes' army, who shows up here victorious. He is, he is heralded by the chorus, and then he sings of how great his victory On Xerxes' behalf, has been and is lauded for.
0: And also worth noting, he is the father of the two sisters, Romilda and Anna Atalanta.
1: That probably won't come up,
2: though. (laughs) (laughs)
0: opera for everyone. And this is Handel Xerxes, and that was the general who commands the armies of the king of Persia, Ariodate.
1: Or something like that. We're never really sure with these names. We, but do, we do our best. Yes, but but Handel wasn't really sure with these names, so I don't think we need to stress about it too much. He's he's an interesting figure. He's the commander of the army and the father, and so he's like in these very traditional masculine roles. But it's interesting, because this bit about the way that gender is is bent in this kind of story, and, and in Tom Merlano for some of the same reasons, has to do
0: Tom Erlano, episode thirty
1: <laughs> has to do with the self definition of Europe against Asia that we were talking about there. There is this idea in terms of the self definition of Europe that the Europeans are manly and the men from Asia are effeminate. And this is key to how Herodotus and various other people talk about—and not just Herodotus, Herodotus. isn't actually as bad as many of the rhetoricians who, who talk about this. But for instance, the Greek tradition credits as one of the most important and influential generals in Xerxes' army, Artemisia, a Greek woman. The implication oh. being, of course, that a Greek woman is about as manly as a Persian man. And, <laughs> oh, ooh, ouch! And, and and again, this is one of these things you see you see uh, a lot of echoes of in pop culture, of course. Since and in the,
0: bumper stickers about how you know my soccer star kid can beat up your honor.
1: <laughs> but but also in terms of like the way that that we we ascribe gender to our enemies. So I, I read an interesting article recently about in the Cold War the way that both America and Russia tried to imagine the other one as being particularly effeminate in some way, that we have our stereotypes. I know. You know
0: what we do in Jackson, Wyoming, to uh, fight against that? We have stickers that we put on all of our gear that says, Ski Like a
1: Girl. (laughs) Well, uh, that's... uh, And proudly. Wyoming for you, the equality state. We're, like, first in the female vote by, like, not a small margin. Colorado showed up, like, decades later, and they're like, Second place, yes! (laughs) So, so uh, yeah, there, there, there's this interesting way that, that gender is, is being constructed. And again, you see this in the, the modern retellings of these stories, that you see intentional androgyny on the part of the Persians in, say, 300, which yeah. is a retelling of this story. Oh, not this story, exactly. But the, the wars that surround this and the way that the figure of the dangerous woman sed- trying to seduce you for the evil empire or the man who's in charge of the evil empire who isn't all that much of a man and it's and it's very interesting to contrast for instance the way that the Persian kings are depicted in the Greek stories and yeah. in the Hebrew stories oh because the Hebrews had a, a very different idea both of what constituted masculinity and in of what the kings of Persia were like
0: yeah that's true and and we could also add in this introduction of this great general commanding all the armies of the Persian Empire, they, he also walks in celebrating a huge
1: victory. Yes. Uh, they... The production we were watching uh, had a giant Lamasu, a big Mesopotamian protector demon, being wheeled in uh, as a as a massive topiary filling the entire stage in celebration of their victory, which oh I thought was goodness. an entertaining way of tying in the way that that production had portrayed all of this, which is to say they'd chosen to portray this story as taking place in. The court of the Sun King. In oh, that Versailles. great
0: absolutist French. Yes. The height of absolutism as a European knows it.
1: Yes, because it's this, the Europeans did have absolute monarchies at uh, at this point in their history. And, and they were oftentimes criticized as being very similar to the kind of despotic rule huh. that you found in the empires of the east and again this is one part of the european critique is that empires in the east are always despotic and this is obviously a totally unfair charge but what it does do is it does illustrate the ways in which the europeans were defining themselves and defining themselves as both more masculine and more free and therefore less under despotic rule and then they saw ways in which they were under despotic rule and they sometimes went along with that because it's always easier to go along with power and sometimes they criticized it.
0: Right. And that's totally in keeping with someone like Handel who decides to not take royal patronage and move on to a, a place where honestly they are developing some limits to the king's authority in Great Britain. I think we have another base in this show, not a major role. Elviro. Elviro, he's a servant. So because we are so conscious of class here, he actually he has a small role, but he is the one character who is entirely comic. He is the servant to the man that everyone loves, Arsène. Yeah,
1: and he's just... Honestly, he repels a lot of the plot forward with his, his toings and froings, but he is... Oh, he's never got any real agency of his own. The only stated desire he ever expresses is that he would like to take a nap because because <laughs> he's a servant. Because he, he just doesn't want anything to do with any of this, and here he is thrown in the middle of all of it. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone. This is the opera Xerxes, and we just heard from Elviro, servant to Arismene, brother of Xerxes. And what was Elviro telling us?
1: Elvira is t- telling us that he's got this thing. He's going to go handle it. Elvira has been tasked by Arsimene, his master, to take a note professing Arsimenes' love to Romilda.
0: So romantic.
1: It's so very romantic. And there can't possibly be anything that will go wrong with this delivery of a letter. It feels very Shakespearean, the whole thing. Huh. Yeah. There are significant shades of Malvolio going on with Elviro. Yeah. But yeah, he takes he, he's going to take a letter from Artemene to Romilda and at first he complains substantially about how he's too tired and wanna do but then he decides <laughs> I've got this thing and he sings this confident song which we just listened to about how he's going to go take charge and make it happen and you should trust him because he's a good servant. Nice. Yeah. And so he wanders off to go take the letter to Romilda, and I'm sure it will make it to her happily and safely and without any further delay.
0: Okay, so what goes wrong?
1: So what goes wrong is that there is this conflict between the sisters that Romilda and Adelanta both want Arsemene, and they proceed to sing Dueling Arias. Ooh that both of them are going to win the day and they're going to see how they're able to accomplish this.
0: He's going to be mine. No, he's going to be mine. Like
1: that. And uh, Romilda is basically, you can't steal my beloved from me because love, 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 love. And Atalanta's like, yeah, just watch this.
0: Watch this. I'm the pretty sister.
1: <laughs> and and uh, that letter might, might help her along her way. Oh, no. Here then is first Romilda followed by Atalanta with their various plans to end up with the handsome Arsimene, brother of Xerxes,
0: thereby concluding act 1 of our three act opera. Bum, bum, Xerxes. Bum. <laughs> You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone.
1: It airs on 89.1 KHOL, Sundays, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming.
0: KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station.
1: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes.
0: I'm your host today, Pat
1: Wright. And I'm Grant. And I know what you're all thinking. Grant, do you sing? No, can't hit a note to save my life.
0: Stay tuned. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. Today's opera is Xerxes by the great composer of Baroque opera, George
1: Friedrich Handel. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. And unlike Xerxes, I've never been king of anything.
0: Well, you're a prince to join us here to record this opera and help us out with so many details. We finished Act 1 and we are launching into Act 2.
1: And here we see what we foreshadowed, and by foreshadowed, I, of course, mean spoiled last time around, which (laughs) is that the letter goes astray.
0: The letter that...
1: The letter that... Should we do an opera helmet quiz to make sure that we're up to speed on things? I sometimes forget about the opera helmet quiz. All right. All right. Are you ready? Put on your opera helmets, everyone. Okay. You in the back. You're not wearing your opera helmet. We're not not kidding about this. This is a safety issue. Okay. Everybody's got their opera helmets on. So... This is a story about the beautiful Romilda. Who is in love with Arsimene? Who is the brother
0: of King Xerxes, the king of all the Persians and his great empire.
1: Who is in love with, with Romilda? There you go. We've we've created our first love triangle. Okay. So
0: I remember something about a quadrangle though. We're gonna
1: we're gonna build more onto our love triangle okay. here. Okay. So the beautiful Romilda's sister is atalanta who is also in love with arsemene well kind of but you know close enough for reckoning she
0: wants to marry
1: him that's enough exactly she's got a wonderful line where uh she gets she gets quizzed do you love him and she's like i don't know i'll i'll, I'll figure it out Is you know one of these things down the road and so they're both in love with arsemene and arsemene is in love with romilda yes so we've got a kind of love quadrangle here.
0: But we've got two people who are actually truly in love with each other, Arsimene and Romilda.
1: And we've got two people who are on the outside. And so what is our good friend Xerxes' plan to get on the inside?
0: To marry his brother off to someone else.
1: Yes. He's going to marry his brother off to someone else so that, you know, Romilda is like going to have to settle for her second choice, the king of the known universe.
0: Right. And Arsemene will get the very lovely sister, Atalanta.
1: Exactly. And everyone's happy. And everyone's happy.
0: No, they're not. Because we have a princess, in the guise of a soldier, wandering- Onto the scene. And that is the princess of an unnamed neighboring realm, Amastre.
1: And she is dressed up as-
0: A soldier. And she's betrothed to the king. To
1: Xerxes. Yes. And so she's not very fond of this whole plan, and is in fact quite miffed by the whole situation. Well,
0: because betrothal is a serious thing, and the king is just ignoring his obligations.
1: And so who is the one other major character we haven't yet introduced?
0: The nice, successful general of the armies of all of Persia, the base Ariadate, also father to Romilda and Atalanta.
1: Yes, who in fact loves his daughters very much and yes. wants all that is best for them. And he knows that Romilda is in love with Arsemene and is hopeful that those two crazy kids will be able to be together.
0: Yes, and he's, we didn't talk about this yet, and I realize it's on Opera Helmet Quiz, but he's quite excited when he gets a sense from Xerxes that favor may be shown to one of his daughters in terms of a romantic connection.
1: Indeed, Xerxes says that Romilda will be able to marry someone of the same family and breeding as the king, and so he assumes that this means that She'll be allowed to marry the man she loves, Arsimenek.
0: His brother, the king's brother. And it's worth noting here, class-wise, we think of the great commander of all the armies as being a pretty big deal, and he is a big deal, but he's nowhere near the class of the royal family. And and so his daughters would not be as well.
1: And so the king says, you know, dismisses this and says that he'll be able to raise them to royal rank. But various other people try to convince him like, well, maybe you should
0: slow pedal that a little bit. Yeah. Besides, we've got a princess waiting in the wings.
1: Yeah. And it it, it does cause problems when you...
0: Okay. There's uh, a letter involved.
1: So there's a letter and the letter is entrusted to...
0: The goofy servant, Elviro.
1: The goofy servant, Elviro, who dresses up as a flower seller and... (laughs) (laughs) Wanders around trying to sell everybody carnations and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And bumps into Amastra, the princess, currently disguised as a man, encountering the servant, currently disguised as a seller of flowers. And she hears of this letter that is going to be sent and is...
0: Can we take our helmets off now?
1: Yes. We seem to have exited the opera helmet quiz and moved back into uh, exposition. Sometimes you do that without a whole lot of warning. It's sort of like how sometimes the airline flight attendants aren't really sure if they should turn <laughs> off the fasten seatbelt sign. Sometimes they just leave it on because like, they don't want to deal with you. <laughs>
0: but we don't want to make you leave your helmets on any longer than strictly necessary.
1: <laughs> okay, so we'll do that little, the, the little beeping they do in the airplane with the other bing bong, which lets you know that it's okay to take your seatbelt on. This or, is
0: a fun opera. <laughs> so what happens with this letter?
1: So our good friend Elviro actually kind of does an opera helmet quiz. Oh, nice! Uh, to make sure that uh, Amastra, who he's he's run into, and you know she's got a trustworthy face, even though she's in disguise and wearing a fake mustache, and so he <laughs> relays to her the whole the whole situation to make sure that everybody's currently caught up right before things start to get very complicated. Well, because we the next were distracted
0: person, in the opera house during the first
1: act. So the very next person who wanders onto the scene is Atalanta, and she means business. And business means trouble. So she finds out
0: <laughs> because that's the kind of gal she is. She
1: finds out that Elviro has this letter and decides, hmm, these people were much too vague in terms of signing their name. Oh, I'm gonna gonna deliver this letter to the wrong person, and so oh, no. she she tricks the hapless Elviro. She acquires the letter from him, and after making a series of excuses on behalf of her sister, delivers it. To the king. The king wanders in, sees Atalanta pretending to read, and he's a king. He likes to know everything. He's like, What you reading there? And she's like, Oh, nothing, don't worry about it. And then it turns out <laughs> she tells the king that this is a letter from Arsimene to Atalanta, who after all is carrying the letter.
0: So his profession of love in the letter the king believes, is to Atalanta, which is works out great for the king. So he can say, Romilda, give up on that guy. He doesn't really love
1: you. And so he is both very surprised and very happy because it turns out that his love quadrangle has worked out very nicely for him. And he's very excited about this whole turn of events. Do you know who's not excited about this turn of events? Romilda. Well, first off, Amastra, because... Oh, right. She's left out of the whole. Suddenly, love love quadrangle has been resolved, and she's been she's been exiled to the back corner of the love pentagon, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and so she sings this song about how her hopes have been betrayed.
0: welcome back to opera for everyone we're listening to xerxes by handel a baroque opera i should mention that this recording we're listening to was made in 1996 at the bavarian state opera with conductor ivor bolton xerxes was sung by Anne murray soprano arismene was sung by christopher robson countertenor amastre the betrothed of xerxes by patricia barden mezzo-soprano ariodate was sung by Umberto Cimo, a bass, Romilde was sung by Yvonne Kenny, soprano, and her sister Atalanta, also a soprano, Julie Kaufman, and our cheeky servant Elviro was Jan Zinkler. I'd also like to say a brief word about baroque opera. By the time Handel was writing, there was a structure that was expected of composers because so much was expected by the audience in a performance and so much was expected in a performance by the performers, by the singers themselves. And the more famous the singer, the more they could demand of a composer. So you'll notice we keep having these different arias by the different characters. What you won't notice because of the way we're presenting it here on Opera for Everyone is there's not a perfect alternation, but it's a real pattern alternating between recitative, the more spoken dialogue parts, and then the arias and the recitatives are really where the plot moves forward. It's really where the action happens. And these arias, the songs that we've been listening to are an opportunity for the various characters to explain or explore their feelings. And so even though they're long, they will have far fewer unique words to them. Just briefly, traditionally arias in the Baroque period are these de capo arias where the same words are repeated three times, First time relatively straight, second time more embellished, and the third time the singer was expected to improvise a bit. Not all of the arias in this opera are quite that way, but Handel was breaking a number of rules with this opera. Just as he added comedic elements, he was also not necessarily making every aria a da capo aria. All right, that's my word on Baroque opera for the moment. Back to the story.
1: So, where last we left off our heroic characters, or our villainous characters, or, you know, choose your pick. They're kind of a little bit of both. Xerxes had just discovered, well, falsely discovered, that Romilda was was actually in love with him, or at least uh, Arsimene was actually in love with Atlanta, Atalanta, and that was enough. Cause, or so the letter said. Because Xerxes believed strongly that he was going to be able to win Romilda over. It's, He's the king. It's a running theme in this play. Xerxes is always overestimating his ability to convince other people to do what he wants them to do. Right. And to make other people love him. Throughout the entire opera, there's a fair bit of dialogue talking about whether or not Xerxes is adored. There's a lot of people who talk about how, Xerxes, if you do this, you won't be adored. And Xerxes is like, I will be adored. And Ariadate is like, oh yes, Xerxes, for this victory. Of course, the victory that Ariadate, not Xerxes, won, you shall be adored forever.
0: Public opinion matters.
1: Yeah. And, And so everyone's concerned with adoration. Right. But Xerxes is the king, and so he thinks that adoration is a thing that comes easily. He plays hockey against his soldiers, and they all trip over themselves to get out of the way and let him score. Right. So Xerxes, is very excited by what he's read in this letter, which he believes was written to someone who it wasn't written to, proceeds to approach Romilda and say, hey, Romilda, guess what? Yeah. Romilda, of course, is quite miffed that her beau, uh, Arsimene, is not actually as in love with her as she thought, and completely understandable. this sets her up for a series of lovers quarrels she and Arsemeni will be having throughout the rest of the play, where they are both doubting each other's fidelity in spite of the fact that neither of them for even a moment wavers in fidelity, which is either sweet or pathetic, or maybe they should see a relationship counselor depending on how you want to look at it.
0: Comic misunderstanding, theatrically speaking.
1: Yes. So Xerxes thinks that Ramilda is in love with him. Ramilda uh, thinks that her lover is unfaithful to her. And all of this is cleverly plotted by Atalanta, who has told Ramilda that her sister, yes. She has told her sister Romilda, that Arsimene, the man they're both in love with, yes, will deny and deny and deny that he doesn't actually love her. Oh, that's the oldest trick in the book. It's the oldest trick in the book, and it works. Anyway, yep. here is Atalanta singing about her devious plan. Ooh.
0: Listening to opera for everyone, and this is Xerxes by Handel. And we've just heard a song by Atalanta, where she tells us
1: about her schemes. So the next thing that happens is, of course, the confrontation between Cersei, uh, Xerxes and Romilda. And in this confrontation, they're both quite confused about the other one's emotions and situation, but they sing beautifully and passionately. And you may be a little confused if you're expecting Xerxes to be a little different from Romilda. But they're both
0: sopranos.
1: Yes, exactly. And so even in this duet context, it can sometimes be a little difficult to discern at first, but there's something neat about the way that these two, in modern versions, female singers are interacting with one another's voices. (laughs) So the overarching historical narrative continues on at this point. Xerxes successfully bridges and joins Europe and Asia, and he is praised by various people, notably Ariodate, because that's kind of his thing. Uh, Commander of the army is praising Xerxes for stuff that he's he not Xerxes but Ariodate is more principally responsible for. But in the meantime, we see that the various characters are quite upset by this situation, particularly Arsimene, who sings at some length. He says he wants to drink the waters of the lethe the river that causes forgetfulness. Oh, well, he's uh, heartbroken. The river that is the border between the land of the living and the dead.
0: Oh, that's serious business.
1: It's serious business. So, yeah, the river of oblivion would be a way to say it. Yeah, In Greek, the, way, the word for truth is aletheia, the opposite of... Oh. Uh, the river of oblivion
0: of forgetfulness yeah
1: so he sings powerfully and movingly about the heartbreak that he feels that he feels his lover has betrayed him just as she is thinking that he has betrayed her right (laughs)
0: For everyone on 891KHOL, and this is Handel's opera Xerxes about the king of Persia and his romantic intrigues
1: and his brother, historically the satrap of Egypt, yes, uh, ruled Egypt as a governor, sort of. That's uh, the countertenor who was just singing, the one who was just singing there, but here he is in defiance of his king, and in fact, in defiance of the gods, he is singing there about how wanting to invoke the infernal spirits and this is one of the various references in this play to a much much earlier play the persians by aeschylus much earlier much earlier in fact not that long after the events that we're talking about here
0: right that's fifth century bc
1: yeah roughly roughly contemporaneous to these events that's a that's a very interesting play it's you know like all greek tragedies it's in a three-part cycle we've lost the other parts of the three-part cycle yeah i should say three parts and a a silly bit too right there's a there's always a a silly one a satyr play that goes along with this and uh, all four of these plays that we that we know of because we know at least their names even if we've lost the text are about people who defy the gods and are punished and so there's talk about the Furies, the underworld spirits that...
0: Because oh, it never works out well when you try to defy the gods.
1: Exactly. And yeah. and there's even more consultation with the underworld in terms of what happens in the action of the play, The Persians, which is to say all of it takes place after the disastrous defeat of the Persian navy at Salamis, And we see Xerxes' mother... Who is hoping that he will survive, hoping that he will come back, hoping that he will be victorious, finds out that he w- wasn't victorious, and things get worse and worse. And, and Xerxes himself shows up on stage only at the very end in this pathetic, haggard state. But this in between. This is in the Aeschylus play. In not the Aeschylus in the opera. play, uh, The Persians. And in between the mother's fears and Xerxes' final appearance, Xerxes' mother invokes the spirit of his dead father. Oh who was, in the Greek mind, a wiser and better ruler than he. And so, we see the ghost rise up from the underworld. The queen tells her her priests to call upon the gods of the sky, but she shall call upon the spirits beneath the earth. And that's kind of the the same sort of language we're getting here. And it's all tying into...
0: That's just how angry this brother is who's been betrayed.
1: The darkness and the desperation, yes. Right. And and the way that hubris is punished.
0: Overconfidence.
1: Yes, yes, hubris is uh, overconfidence, the kind of overconfidence that makes mortals aspire to godhood and think that they can do things like chain the Bosporus. Right. For our next piece, we're going to listen to Xerxes and Amastra singing a beautiful duet.
0: And just as a reminder, Amastra is the disguised princess who was in fact betrothed to Xerxes. And both of
1: them are singing roughly the same thing because they both feel betrayed. Amastra feels betrayed by Xerxes having broken off the betrothal. Well, Xerxes feels betrayed because the woman he wanted to fall in love with him hasn't fallen in love with him. Okay, well maybe some of them have better and less good causes for feeling betrayed, but, but they both do feel betrayed. And there's something actually kind of sweet, almost in a weird messed up way about this because we the audience know that these are the two characters who are supposed to end up together. Right. And here they are feeling the same desperate emotion at the same time, right, in the same way a that kind
0: of a kind of bonding of a sort going on.
1: Yeah, they're they're being paired off in the same way that the other two lovers are being paired off, feeling the same kind of emotions. Although marred by selfishness and confusion, not really understanding why. And so singing together about how great the torment is that jealousy causes. <laughs> At the end of their duet, Amastra and Xerxes confront one another. Well, that is to say, Amastra confronts Xerxes with her feelings of betrayal and torment. She's still in disguise, but she calls him a villain and draws her sword. She is restrained by the guards. But after Xerxes leaves, trying to escape such disturbances as one should, someone takes pity on Amastra. Any guess who?
0: Romilda takes pity on her.
1: Yes, and so Ramilda sees this brave soldier opposing right. the king, and and she's like, "You're my kind of guy." And she dismisses the guards, and they kind of bond over their shared desires to stand see how up to work the out. king.
0: Yes. Yeah,
1: and it's it's you know qu- actually quite lovely to see these these two hearts meet. That, that R- Ramilda says, "What? Just tell me what made you stand up to the king?" And Amastra said, "He wanted to force you to become his wife, although your heart is full of love for another." Oh. And then Ramilda sings this beautiful aria about love. Love that overwhelms and love that compels, love that is stronger than all the guards and all the swords in the world. And says that anyone who shrinks back from that madness is not really in love. Because love is madness, it is enthusiasm, it is a presence of the divine Which is that overpowers.
0: Arguably, what we just saw with Amastra that power of that passion and love caused her to do something that is really dangerous if the king thinks she's a soldier and she's speaking that way to him. That could be fatal. Indeed. And this passionate song is the final song of Act Two. Yes. ¶¶ You're listening to Xerxes by Handel on Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. We've just concluded Act 2 and we are ready to begin
1: our final act. We just heard a beautiful song about the power of love from Romilda and now we see Romilda's lover, Arsimene, finally starting to kind of figure out what's going on and talking to Atalanta and telling her that he's not in love with her and he won't be in love with her. And Atalanta. But she went to all that trouble. Atalanta, of course, breaks down and says, I cannot live without you. No, that's not what happens. Atalanta really doesn't care, because she was doing this on a lark anyway. And so (laughs) she she sings this this humorous song about how even though the one she was in love with doesn't like her, she's pretty enough to find somebody else.
0: You know those men; they're a dime a dozen.
1: Exactly, and and it it serves as a as a direct counterpoint to the last song. Right. This is the opposite of the madness of being in love that is overpowering. This is the feeling of eh, I could take it or leave it. I'll find
0: another. to Opera for Everyone. You're listening to Xerxes and that was Atalanta, the pretty sister of Romilda who's, well, she's just gonna wash that man right out of her
1: hair, I think. Exactly. She's gonna send him on his way. And she's got this very blasé attitude towards the whole thing. But you know who doesn't? Arsimene doesn't. Arsimene.
0: Well, he's the man that all the women want.
1: And so Arsimene and his lover Romilda are very, very upset with each other. They continue to have these Lovers quarrels and according to the stage directions exit in different directions. That's all you need to know. And then something happens that's going to start us on the road to reconciliation. But of course, we all know that the only way to make a right is to take three lefts. And so the way that we get there <laughs> is that Ariodate runs into Xerxes.
0: Ariodate, our great general.
1: So Ariodate is the great general, the father of Romilda and atalanta and uh, Xerxes lets him know that he's ready, and there's going to be uh, a marriage between Ariadate, his daughter and one of the same lineage and blood of the king as the king. And uh, which Ariad- the
0: king had hinted about earlier.
1: And uh, Ariadate's is like, "Oh, this is great! I'm so excited about this. Yeah, everything's going to come up roses, and I'm so happy because Romilda gets to be with Arsène." But he doesn't say this, of course, and so the confusion right. and continues. and this is
0: this is hope against hope because she's really elevating her station by marrying into royal blood.
1: Yes, and thereby, of course, her father's station as well. Of course. And so here he is singing so very happily, and he's going to go make wedding preparations next thing anybody knows. (laughs) ¶¶
2: Sortes in the day, fell down, and he might be more. He be
3: more. He might be I be
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Opera Xerxes by Handel. And that's one happy father. He's going to see his daughter marrying her true love and the family be elevated in the process.
1: Yeah. And so everything looks like it's going to work out great. But Ariadate kind of thinks that all this is going to be worked out. And so he gets the whole wedding thing set up and kind of on their way to get married, although they don't know it. Romilda and Arsemene are arguing about their inconstancy.
0: Well, those two are still bickering. Yeah, they're still,
1: they're still bickering, even though they're just about to be married because they don't know they're just about to be married. They
0: don't know Daddy dear has fixed it all.
1: <laughs> and so they go and have this one last, uh, of course, beautiful operatic and very dramatic argument on their way to be wed.
0: And, but correct me if I'm wrong, every single character misunderstands the situation at this point. Oh yes, yeah. With the possible exception of Atalanta.
1: Yeah, Atalanta has some sense of vaguely what's going on and uh, Amastra's, you know, working her angle as best as she can. The
0: princess, yes, yeah, that's that's Um, true. But
1: but the the lovers don't know what's going on. Xerxes doesn't know what's going on. Uh, Ariadate doesn't know what's going on, but in the best possible way, he's trying to make the world the way he wants it but he thinks the world already is how he wants it it's this wonderful thing he where he
0: king has given him his heart's desire
1: exactly he identifies his will with the king consistently throughout this story
0: Opera for everyone, and we are rounding the corner into the home stretch of Act Three of Handel's *Xerxes*. The two lovers at the center of all this get married. Are- they,
1: they wander in. Well, but they just heard the bickering. They're just bickering, and they wander in, and there's the priests. Priests, of course, because it's polytheistic religion, lots of gods. I mean, I mean, of course, question mark on that, Zoroastrianism and all that, but let's not get into the details here. Let's not. We, no time for that right now. <laughs> the characters as presented here are certainly polytheists. So, what happens is the, there's, there's all the priests, and the priests say, well, let's do this. Nothing can prevent the will of heaven from happening. And oh, this is, of that's course, good. Keeping up the theme of the whole thing, and... Tying into Aeschylus and the ways that Herodotus and others understood the whole uh, Persian experiment, but with an uplifting take. Yes. Instead of thinking of the gods as simply as being vengeful and being destroyers, Handel is coming at this with, well, we know Handel's religious outlook because... We've listened to the Messiah before.
0: Yes, we have. Or
1: at least that bit with the hallelujahs in it.
0: Well, he wrote a great many oratorios. Yes. And
1: so he has, a, he has a a brighter view of the divine Yeah. than, say, Aeschylus did. Aeschylus thought that at its best, the divine avenged those who have been wronged. Yes. But yes. here we see the divine stepping in in its way to resolve the problems that the foibles of man have caused.
0: Right. Through the misunderstanding of the father
1: figure. And exactly. And so the wedding goes through.
0: And they're married, and they're so happy.
1: And they're they're married, and they're so happy. And then Xerxes shows up, and he says, "Okay, I'm ready to get married to Romilda. And, and and Daddy
0: Dearest must
1: be utterly confused. And Daddy Dearest is looking down at the wedding invitations he had printed out, and he's looking up at Xerxes, and he's looking down at his wedding invitation. And you no, know, it's it's a this is comic, the comic moment.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. This but is. also
1: a very serious moment because yeah. Xerxes has power of life and death over every one of these people. And in fact, right. he. Starts ordering deaths in every different direction that he can find and sings the song about the dark furies of the merciless depths. Does that sound like anything? It's our chthonic deities, chthonic as opposed to celestial, celestial or gods of the sky chthonic or gods of under the world the chthonic deities that are going to come up and avenge him and so he's invoking these deities and starts ordering people's executions as he tries to work out his impotent rage
0: This is opera for everyone and that was the persian king xerxes in handel's opera invoking the furies
1: yes those avengers and then the king basically starts ordering executions all around, and uh, everybody dies. You know, Handel's operas
0: typically had happy endings, and everybody sings on stage at the end. So I'm waiting for
1: that. Okay. Well, then we'll have to we'll have to have a slightly different ending here. I think what happens is he orders uh, the, this violence all around, and what then proceeds to happen is he is accosted. And confronted by Amastra. Amastra,
0: says, that, that cheeky soldier who that, is
1: in fact his betrothed. That cheeky soldier who, in her kind of messed up way, is sort of the moral center here. The only person who is actively talking about justice and right and wrong.
0: Yes, and also among the highest born.
1: Yes and there's something to be said about the conventions of these stories that that odd convention that you don't notice until you notice it where every Shakespeare tragedy ends with the highest ranking character giving a speech
0: yeah the nobility she i mean and I'm I'm not I don't simply mean by birth but she is also showing nobility of spirit yes
1: and she confronts Xerxes and she says how can you condemn anyone after what you have done and Xerxes who seems to have like basically completely forgotten about the whole thing. Right. Is immediately repentant. Yeah. He's immediately ashamed. He's immediately saying like, wow, I I can't believe that I did this. I, I don't deserve your forgiveness. And again, she shows nobility of spirit mm-hmm. and she forgives him.
0: Well, she saved him from a great sin, if I can use that word, of murdering his own brother. Yes. Among other people, but particularly the brother would be... The yes, I think,
1: I think the, the Christian term sin is anachronistic or, you know, inappropriate to most of ancient Greek thought, except for violence against family members. Right. That's the the one thing that gets treated as sin, really. It's something that's unforgivable. And, and, and in fact unforgivable even if you didn't know you were doing it, even if you had exculping, you know, circumstances like
0: think of Oedipus, Yeah, right.
1: like it it's, it's Oedipus like is it exactly his fault? I mean, kind of you like killed a random dude on the side of the road, so like you know, not the best role model there. But like most of what he did, he didn't know he was doing. And So yes, the violation of the rules of the gods, the most terrible of them are against fratricide
0: absolutely so
1: xerxes has been saved from that so he's been saved from that and it means that when he repents she says yeah of course just take me back and he says of course oh so she reveals herself as yes his betrothed now tears off the fake mustache i'm Kind of making that up, but I don't know that she has a fake mustache in most productions. But you know, she could. Her, Why not? Her man's disguise. Her man's disguise. Maybe the sword clatters to the ground.
0: Pull off a hat, let her hair tumble free. No, I'm just making that up too.
1: <laughs> yeah, the sword actually doesn't clatter to the ground. She actually, the sword, the sword is actually uh, moved about. There's there's there a few swords that get moved around in this, in this final scene, and ultimately Xerxes takes a sword and is points it at himself because he's so horrified, but she forgives him. And everyone is able to live on happily. And so Romilda, who sang about the power of love, gets to sing this final piece.
0: The final aria. uh,
1: Leading into the finale of the entire opera. Singing about the victory of love. And how everything in the world has been restored to where it is. That Xerxes is with Amastra. And Arsimene is with Romilda. And Elviro is with his bottle of wine. And, you know... Atalanta. Well, she'll be fine. She'll
0: get any man she wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, in the end, they sing these words. My heart holds you dear. At your hands I have become a prize of love. Peace returns to us. Joy fills our hearts. And love and honor united are victorious.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright.
1: And I'm Grant, a mediocre bridge builder at best.
0: Xerxes would appreciate that. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.
1: Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone because we believe opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.